All right, coaches, thanks again for tuning in. I uh, appreciate the support. I know we've had a lot of interaction, coaches uh, messaging me on Twitter and complimenting and thanking me for all the stuff that we've done. And really, for me, it's been uh, really cool to just be able to talk to different high school coaches and hear all the great things that our guys are doing uh, across the state. But today, we are mixing it up a little bit. Uh, we're going to the college ranks with Coach Brad Bigler from um, Southwest State uh, down in Marshall. And I know Coach has a little bit of a high school background, but he's been in Marshall for a while or Southwest for a, mile, a while. So, uh, Coach, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So uh, one thing that we always do is we do the coaching Wikipedia page. And I've only had one coach so far in Damian Johnson from North St. Paul who actually has a Wikipedia page. I quick looked. Unfortunately, you know, you've won the NSIC a couple times, the NSIC tournament. You've been to the NCAA tournament. You don't got a Wikipedia page, Coach. So tell us your coaching Wikipedia page and where you've been, where you played, and what got you to uh, Southwest. Well, I, I'm, I've been groomed for this moment uh, to be a college coach or actually just to be a coach in general. My dad was a basketball coach for 40-some years, actually was inducted in the Hall of Fame of Iowa here this past year. And a lot to, to where I am today probably belongs to, to his efforts along the way and how he grew me. I was that, that kid, obviously, who grew up in the gym, but my dad, when he had camps, <clears throat> I'd be like in seventh grade, and my dad would be the guy, he put me on a station, and I'd have to do the ball handling station with the fourth through sixth graders for the entire stations. And every demonstration, it was me getting up there and having to do the demonstration, no matter what age I was, and him correcting me in front of a crowd. And, and he just kind of set me up again, with my experiences to, to be in this moment. Um, I grew up in Iowa in a small town, ended up moving to Fort Madison, Iowa, and was fortunate to play with some, some great players. When I was in Fort Madison, I, I, I moved in and, and I had, you know, God works in mysterious ways. I, I moved in and, and my neighbor was the best role model that I could ever have. He ended up being all state and everything, multiple sports, went on to play at Iowa, went on to be drafted by the Denver Nuggets, played in the NBA for 10 years, and now is currently um, coaching for the Denver Nuggets. And so from there, I had a great high school experience, played with a lot of talented guys, found my way up to Southwest Minnesota State. I actually was a pretty much a, a, a walk-on type guy, um, had to earn everything that I was, was, was given. And one of those situations where um, it, it, it was, it, again, had a lot of fun, um, was given a lot of opportunities from guys like Coach Miles, Greg Steeman, had some great role models, great mentors. And, uh, and now I just kind of worked my way up where out of, out of college, I was a high school girls basketball coach. Great experience. I will never trade that for anything. I honestly, coming out of college, I thought I knew a lot, like a lot of young guys. And I was humbled quick. And girls basketball really made me break things down to the simplest form. <clears throat> it made me reevaluate how I did things, the process, procedure, um, the implementation. All those things came into play. And, and then Coach Greg Steeman, Recruited me back over as a graduate assistant. I was a graduate assistant for a couple of years. Worked my way up. Opportunities presented themselves. Became the assistant coach. And then, oh, it's about 10, 11 years ago now, or Greg Steeman stepped away for family. 
and gave me an opportunity to, to become a head coach at Southwest Minnesota State. So I'm a Princeton coach. Uh, I've been doing this podcast because uh, I want to share the stories of various coaches around the state, see what coaches can learn from. You know, we've had Chris Fadness on. We've had Matthew McAllister, Bryce Tesdell, just some of the few people uh, that we've had on. I also had Jared Bergeron on, you know, Princeton grad, played at Wisconsin. He does a lot of stuff with Catalyst Training. When I came to Princeton, there's always two names that were brought up uh, about guys that were kind of like just legendary Princeton basketball players players and I'm not trying to knock Paul Sather obviously doing a great job did a great job at Northern now he's over at UND but the two names are Jared Berger and Scott Rail and Scott Rail played at Southwest I know he was one of your guys uh, so if you don't want to hear Scott Rail's story you got something wrong with you if you want to skip ahead but I would really any Scott Rail story is worth listening to so how was it coaching Scott Rail? Well I, I think Scott is is could be a, one of those stories that anyone could listen to He's a guy who came on a smaller scholarship early on. It's funny, we actually beat Paul Sather for Scott Rail. So at the time, Scott's decision came down to go play with Paul at Black Hill State or come to Southwest and, and, and play for us. When we recruited Scott, he came in with uh, another guy named Taylor Hughesby. And Taylor and Scott's stories kind of just went together. They blended together. Taylor was a Pelican Rapids guy and, and Scott at Princeton. And they both came in, and, and they knew that they had a red shirt coming in. And both of them, it was from day one, you knew that those guys were going to bring it. And both of those guys' physicality, intensity, and they made each other better. And then Scott Rail just kind of, you know what, I have to admit, he just kind of took off. His junior and senior year, he was one of the better power forwards in the league. His senior year, he actually – there's not many guys in the NSSC that average a double-double. And Scott is on that, that short list of guys in the NSI that was able to, uh, to average a double-double. His toughness – I tell you what, there isn't a whole lot of guys tougher that have been in the NSIC than Scott Rail. His ability to take contact, his ability to be an elite rebounder, both offensively and defensively, I mean, that guy – he, he is he ranks right up there as one of the better power forwards not only in in southwest history but in the in the conference and i i just i just really appreciate his passion for the game scott's passion and his love to compete now coming out of high school he was that three sport athlete and i think that carried over into college and how he competed every day that is such a big thing and to be an everyday guy with the intensity even with the wear and tear on his body, he was an everyday guy, and I just really appreciate everything that he did. So a school like Princeton, obviously we mentioned a couple of scholarship kids. We don't have scholarship kids coming through. You know, there are schools, the big 4A schools in the Metro who have scholarship kids year in and year out, uh, and they can have that natural competition. I just uh, talked with Greg Berg at Lake City the other day about how he challenged uh, Nathan Heisey, who's going to UNI in practice. And, you know, they're a 2A school who has some good players, but day in and day out just it was a challenge at times to uh, get – Nathan, uh, challenge in practice. And so what is some advice for you as a D2 coach uh, to give high school coaches if we have that guy who's, you know, maybe it's not an NSIC kid, maybe it's not a D1 kid, but even like a, a, a fringe D3 kid or a kid maybe on that D3, D2 buzz, bubble, what's some advice that you could give high school coaches to challenge that kid and also help them get prepared for the next level? I think, I think a lot of it is talking about ownership. I think sometimes that guy has to do more than what is what – is, asked of them and and I think that's where those types of guys if they have that passion to be a college basketball player you have to you kind of have to work when no one else is watching you have to 
put in your time and, and push yourself in a different way and that's okay. But what they find is some of the best guys that do that, that are the best teammates, not only do they hold themselves to a higher standard, they also bring a couple teammates with them to the gym. And then that's all of a sudden how you do something special where, yeah, they hold the ownership on themselves and, and, and do all those things. But man, you can bring a couple other guys with you to the gym. And all of a sudden now that, that spurs into an environment where it creates an environment of, of competition. I know you had um, um, some other guys on this on this uh, call with with uh, Tezdal and um, who else was on here just from Buffalo here recently? Ortman, Josh Ortman. Or, yeah, Ortman, Ortman. That's right. And both of those guys. I mean, I think they probably had really good uh, podcasts. I'm sure they had a lot of good. But both of those guys. I mean, those are both guys who have played with great basketball IQ. Uh, I've coached against both of them, the scouting reports. I actually recruited and watched and evaluated both of them coming out of high school. And, and so those guys, they, they probably gave some really good answers to that as well, being guys who have went through the, the high school thing and then took that step to college and what it meant to, to – or what you had to do to survive in college. Because a lot of times what they get is what gets you to college doesn't always what keeps you in college. When you get to college, there's so many talented players. And that passion and that extra, that extra ownership piece usually comes into play, well, which, which guys make and which guys don't. So from a college or from a high school coach's perspective, just holding that young man to a higher level to understand that he's got to pay his dues, that things aren't going to come easy, and that you got to work when no one else is watching. You're a college coach. Most of the people listening to this are high school coaches, but coaching's coaching no matter if you're coaching fourth grade traveling or coaching in the Big Ten. So what are some of your core values as a head coach? Um, you know, I talk – we kind of have four things that we talk about in our program. Um, one is awareness. Two is humility. Ownership. And then the last one is forgiveness. And I've actually been very fortunate to be um, – kind of going into this public speaking thing and, and have to talk at a lot of different venues, whether it's a, a leadership or, or social decision-making. And a lot of times we come back to talking about these things. I, I just find that in our program that guys who have a great awareness are, are guys who know how to have a sense of reality, they kind of know where they're at. They're, they're, they're not, their ego is, is, is at the right spot. They know how to serve others. And they honestly know how to, they can be trusted. They know how to make good decisions when no one else is watching. Uh, that humility piece, boy, that's probably something else I could have said with the high school thing. I think those players with, that have humility are coachable. They're, they don't have an entitlement. They know how to listen, right? We, we've all seen that player when we're coaching them and you, you're giving them instruction and before you're even done with the instruction, they say, yeah, I got it, coach. Yeah, I got it. but I'm not even done with my sentence. I got it, coach. I got it. No, no, just listen first. It's okay. So to be a great listener is also another way of being a great teammate. Sometimes we talk so much about leadership and how we have to make actions. And we want our guys to be vocal. Well, sometimes the best leadership, too, is, is also being able to be led and allowing a teammate to coach you up when it's not maybe your best day. And so that humility piece is big. The ownership, 
kind of talked about that a little bit. I think the thing about ownership is that's the difference between average to good, good to great. That routine that you establish is, is essential. And doing more than what's asked, putting yourself in those situations that take yourself out of your comfort zone, I think that all comes into play. And that forgiveness, that's kind of a weird one. A lot of people are like, well, what's forgiveness mean? Well, forgiveness is what I've, in my expectations or my experiences with players who have expectations, your ability to not only forgive a teammate, but also to forgive yourself. A lot of guys have a hard time forgiving themselves in the moment where they get down on themselves and they don't have the ability to move on to the next play. I think sometimes that forgiveness piece also comes back to where it brings everything else in. The awareness, the humility, the ownership, it kind of brings everything in where there's that balance and understanding expectations on a daily basis, but also having forgiveness. So when someone's intentions are where they need to be, but they make a mistake, how to pick a teammate up and how to be a great teammate. And so that's a real quick, um, a real quick kind of the values of our program, but that's, that's kind of what we start with. You have more time with your guys, I'm guessing, uh, throughout the day than our high school coaches do. But your, your kids are still students, right? They got a full load of classes. Um, and so how much time do you spend teaching and educating on, the, on those core values? Well, I think it's you just got to be consistent. I don't think you have to overdo it. I think you just got to be consistent with your messages. You got to be careful of this. You have that social decision that, that, that one speech right at the beginning of the year you can't do it just one time it's you got to have it just kind of reminders throughout the year and I think when you're consistent with your message and sometimes you can be a little bit repetitive I think it's okay but they know what you're going to say and I think Patrick Lencione uh, I don't know if you ever read it read any of his books um, but the five dysfunctions of a team and, and some of those other books are the, the CEO He's got some amazing stuff. Hey, I just listened to a podcast where he was talking about if your message and your players can mimic your message and they know exactly what you say, well, then there's probably some value to that where you're consistent enough. They know, they know now where I think it's important just to be consistent with it. So let's get into the coaching side of this from the X's and O's and practice planning is where we'll start here. So one thing, I remember you spoke at our fall uh, coaches association clinic a couple of years ago. And, you know, I've been, I've been doing this now for seven years. I went down to the conference for eight years and you get some coaches who come in D one coaches, maybe kind of fly in for the day, do their two hours and they're off and it's kind of canned and it's not, it's not a lot of value in that. And that's from a high school coach's lens, but in all those presentations, uh, when you spoke, it was the stuff, my, that's the stuff that my staff and myself, we looked at each other like, Holy crap, this is really good. And so we took a ton of notes. We wrote a lot of stuff down and we've applied a ton of the stuff that you spoke to at that clinic a couple of years ago. The biggest thing was with practice planning. And so now I, I know my competitors in Mississippi eight and seven, three, a are listening. So I hopefully I'm not like tipping too much of our secrets. Uh, but I'm here to share with everyone. I want coaches to learn. So talk about your practice planning and what goes into that. Uh, it's a lot. Um, I just believe that practice planning honestly starts in the off season. It starts with, so much about understanding your the the schedule and holistically of your of your year and then how you can practice 
not only at the beginning of the year, you know, everyone's pretty organized at the beginning of the year, but it's in the middle of the year and at the end of the year and how you have to have different types of practices at different times of the year, how your routine for a week at a high school level, you have games all different th times throughout the week, but how do you have practice the day before a game? How do you have practice the day after the game? Maybe you have a week where you only have one game, so maybe you can push your guys a little bit differently that week. I think planning ahead and understanding all of those situations is important. I think basketball is creative. I think you have the ability to, to teach certain drills that can happen early in the year. And then I think you can phase into some more detailed drills in the middle of the year and then even add some stuff at the end of the year from a skill development standpoint, from an implementation standpoint. I think, again, that planning piece, even for me right now, I mean, we, we break it down now. And, and we look also holistically of, of maybe even some approaches to we're going to go against these offensive – or I'm sorry, these defensive packages within our conference for these two weeks to the align. How do we prepare? And, again, just getting those reps um, well in advance rather than just doing stuff just the day before a game. If you can plan ahead and you can have some different breakdowns, you can do some different things – Again, just those reps will allow you to be successful. How do you decide what scenario, if it's baseline out of bounds, press offense, transition offense, whatever, how do you decide what gets X amount of time? That's good. Um, I, I try to chart a little bit offense and defense and having a balance throughout the year, um, just not allowing us to, to slip one way or the other. But I do believe – just teaching those situations. I'm a big believer um, in end-of-game situations, having practiced them, so that when it comes to the end of the game, there's no, like, I don't have to be ultra-creative and draw something up in the heat of the moment. The guys kind of know what we're doing. And I'm a big believer in, in, in understanding that throughout practices in the week and knowing when you can do those things and, and sprinkling those things in, it's important. Uh, the end-of-game situations, whether it's your side-outs, end-outs, full-court, um, having a little bit of that time and just planning ahead with all that stuff, it's important. I, I'm not the biggest baseline out of bounds guy where we don't spend a, a great deal of time on that. But, um, but that obviously for some guys, I mean, some, some coaches take that to another level. They want to win that game. Like they, they've charted, um, are we going to win the baseline out of bounds war uh, with the other team? Are we going to score more points in that situation than the other team? I want to say that we're necessarily that, but, we definitely split, you know, an emphasis on all situations. Do you have uh, – are you blocking off X amount of time for offense and defense, or are you kind of merging the two things throughout a practice? Uh, I think you have different offensive implementation drills where maybe a drill we need we, – we're really big on offensive scheme buildups, right? So we're going three-on-threes to four-on-fours to five-on-fives. And, and it's – a lot of it is with our ball screen offense going against the defense that we're going to be seeing that week. But to those buildups, obviously when the, the fewer guys that are on the floor, it's more of an offensive drill. It's really hard for the defense to be able to handle that. And then it builds up. And as you add guys in, obviously the defensive thing comes more pri a priority. But, um, yeah, I mean, just your ability to create um, game-like situations in practice. Sometimes you're defensive side of things. You're going to make it harder than the offense, uh, harder for the offense, and it's a defensive drill. And, and, again, we're big on rotations, and I'm sure you're going to ask a lot of those questions later of what our philosophies are of offense and defense. But um, 
you know, we're, 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 we're big on playing as a unit, and that's both offensively and defensively. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for a couple of drills that high school coaches could steal. I know it's going to be tough for people listening to explain a couple of drills. What's like two drills that you could uh, share out that high school coaches could try to install into their practices next fall? Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot there. I didn't, I didn't give you that heads up. Uh, So I'm putting you on the spot. I mean, I think from a defensive perspective, I, we, we talk so much about the levels of the defense on the basketball, rim protection, and then the rotations after that. And we put our guys, um, we're not as much the traditional shell where you have four on the perimeter. We do that a little bit, yes. But our, our, we have one what we call it's a shell that's a diamond. So it's kind of a three out with a, four, with a big guy in. And then what we'll like to do is we call it an open block. So we'll push the guy, the post, away. So wherever the ball goes, we'll push him away. And then we'll just really encourage a lot of driving, uh, lane line drives, baseline drives, and then having our full levels, right? So your three levels of, of push them to the, pushing them to the rim, the guy at the rim, had guard in the rim, and then the guy on the backside just seeing and, and, and closing out. And, and I – I probably could follow up and give you some more video. Uh, we have a lot of video on that, but it's a, it sounds like a simple drill, but there's a lot of, a lot of details of things that you can do within that, that drill. You could go live only on the wings. You could go live only on top. You can say, Hey, we're going to push them to the baseline. We're going to push them to the middle. There's a lot of different ways of changing the drill and, and making it a very competitive drill, but also, it's one of those things, if they can do those rotations four on four, you add a fifth guy just to kind of complete the rotations later on um, where we go a four on four, then to a five on five buildup. It, it just allows your guys to be able to anticipate. We talk so much about being able to see the ball, anticipating and, and being instinctive. I, we, 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 there was a while there and we weren't necessarily this year. We were kind of starting over the cycle. And we can talk about that later, but when we had our, our best teams, our best teams, we, we led or got second in the league in steals. And it was our ability to be playmakers off the ball and read and make, get our hands on balls. And, and I like to say turn, they go uh, turnovers to touchdowns. And so we get those steals and put them in layups. I think a lot of times in the end of the season, when you get turnovers to touchdowns and you get those four or six points, that can be the difference in the game. And so just to be defensive playmakers, we really encourage that. Let's transition to defense then, since you talked about it. Uh, what is your guys' general philosophy with rotations? Well, I know the new, um, the new thing is, is to not to rotate, right? That's kind of the new phase that's kind of coming in. I don't know if that's trickled into high school as much, but in college, there's so much about, hey, it's really turning into a one-on-one game like the NBA where you don't necessarily have the levels. We just, we're kind of, I'm old school with that. Um, I, I just believe you're never going to be able to score on one guy and us in the paint. Uh, we want, we want to have, we always want to bring a guy for rim protection, whether that's a guard or a post. We are, we, we just want to take away those high percentage shots. Um, now where it comes back to is, is the game is now, moved on ability to make three-point shots and how that's impacted the game. And, and sometimes you have the, that, that early on in the season when we're doing our stuff, teams can get a few more three-point shots up on us because our, just our rotations aren't on point. 
And sometimes we have young guys that are still being implemented in the program and just not quite there yet. But later on in the season, when you're playing down that stretch, we had a, you know, we were very fortunate with our last cycle of guys where we went to three NSIC championships. We have a pretty efficient offense. But honestly, what got us to those championship games was our defense and our ability to, to, to play at a pretty high level at that point. Uh, our guys, compliment to them. Um, they bought in. They were moving when the ball was in the air. They were, um, uh, they were anticipating and, 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 again, making those plays. And the thing about defense, too, I think from a, a, a coach's perspective, having those ability to, to disrupt the other team's rhythm, right? Whether that's a press, whether that's a zone, having a few tricks in the bag to be able to pull out at the right time is important. I'm, I'm a believer in, in some creativity on the defensive end as well. I'm, I think we've, we've had our, our run and jump uh, press has been huge for us. It's, it's helped us win an NSIC championship on uh, two different years where it played a factor. It helped us in NCAA tournament um, about four years ago. We were playing a team. Uh, we were playing a team from down south, and we just we pulled on the press and, and just kind of disrupted them, and all of a sudden we made some plays. And so just that creativity is a big piece in coaching, but it also comes back to what your players can handle. And, and that's where, again, that practice stuff and, and just having those – those reps and practice is important, but also from a holistic approach, knowing that you may not use it all the time, but you still got to get a couple reps you throw out in having that plan. You talk about your, I know one thing that you talked about at the clinic a couple of years ago was if a guy gets beat off the dribble, uh, where they're next, where they're looking to move on to the next play. And you showed some really good no. clips at the clinic about guys making steals. And so you just talk a little bit more about that and, and how you teach the all right, we're going to get beat, right? Guys are good at basketball, no. so where's our next movement? Well, that really comes back to the levels. I, I just think, again, your, your ability to understand who has rim protection. And then I think we talked about the veering concept at, at, uh, yep. at, um, at the thing. So what the veering concept is is really just understanding, again, that vision piece where if I do get beat, what's the next level? Can I drop down and make a play in a ball? We talked at the coaches' clinic a lot about covering up too. So – if a guy has rim protection, well, who's, who's covering him up? And, and then it goes about, about vision. And so what we always say on the defensive end, if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake watching the ball rather than, than probably focusing so much on your man. And it sounds simple, but we do some – we kind of do some unorthodox things on the backside where we'll, we'll open up and our back will actually be to our man a little bit. And we'll do some things where it's, it's a little unconventional, but I think – when you see our film and how our guys rotate, it's really important that they have the ability to have the vision so that they have the ability to anticipate. And, and that vision piece is, there's a lot of guys like Ryan Brueggemann, when we had him, you know, just his ability to kind of go, I call it off script. So when you have rotations and you have that ability to kind of know, I got to go from point A to point B. Yeah, that's great. But those guys that have the ability to anticipate and they can go off script and they just make a read and they know, all right, well, this guy is this baseline drive, and he gets cut off here. Where those offensive guys have put themselves in those pro spots, well, that one's not taken, you know, that one's taken away, that one's taken away. His only option is that guy, and Ryan's supposed to be here, but then he could go off script and go get a steal. 
I think that's great basketball and, and just high basketball IQ and that ability to be a defensive playmaker when it's needed. When you're talking about footwork, you're talking about closeouts, what are some of the, when you're, I don't know if you, maybe you hammer it week one, you're really talking footwork. Maybe you're coming back to it in January or whatever the case may be. What are some of your main teaching points when you're talking footwork and closeouts? Uh, we, we talk a lot about balance. I, I'm not, I mean, I think I demonstrated this as a coach climber too. Sometimes when coaches talk about balance, they say low and wide. And, and I, I guess I would disagree with that respectfully that the wide piece isn't necessarily what sets you up for success. I have so many video clips of NBA guys, college guys, where you get low and wide and you, you don't have a good first step. You can't open up your hips. You can't shift. You can't get a first slide angle. So there's a lot of things where we talk about probably being a little bit more narrow. I would say kind of like a cornerback on defensive in football where you're, you're, no, you're a little bit more narrow and you have more athletic and your ability to shift and move. The new thing, too, depends on how you close out, whether it's on the wing or whether it's on top. On the wing, yeah, you can do the traditional uh, three slides here or there, but on top, kind of the new thing that's being taught is to kind of, to kind of open, your hip, open up your hips and kind of take off running and cut them off with a run. And, and that's more of an elite um, defender skill set with fast guys. And so again, just that ability to understand where you're at on the floor changes how you close out. Obviously the personnel also changes how you close out, but also from a, your own personal perspective, you got to know your own strengths. I mean, what's my strengths and how I close out. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that. And um, it's just important that guys got to know their own game. I gave you the opportunity when I asked about um, what you would want high school coaches and no one preparing your, their student athletes for the next level. And you didn't rip on the flex. Uh, I really was hoping you'd, you'd kind of give it, give it to the flex a little bit. Cause uh, you know, I don't <laughs> think that's a very efficient offense, but I know some teams still run that. And I guess that's great. Great for you. If you're still running that, um, what do you guys run? And then what would be within that? What do you think would be is if you watch a lot of high school games, you're recruiting a ton of guys, especially in the state of Minnesota. Uh, I know you probably trickle in Iowa and South and North Dakota a little bit for some of your guys, but what are what, you're watching the high school game a lot. What do you think is an offense that you would recommend? Uh, maybe it's your stuff or you'd recommend coaches installing within their program. Well, I think again, you have to go back to what your strengths are, but I do believe if a coach has a good system, that a system has the ability to adapt to its person. And I think you have the ability also to be creative enough where you can include some ball screens. I always laugh about that a little bit too. So, I mean, I guess I didn't listen to the podcast with Tezdal, um, but I would say like, I always laugh because head coaches coach how they were confident, how they played or how maybe how they were taught. So like you get a shooter and a shooter's now a head coach, guess what kind of offense he's going to run? He's going to run a motion offense. You get a big guy? Like, I, I make fun of Paul Saylor all the time. Um, you get Paul Saylor, well, what kind of offense is he going to He's going to run a big guy offense, so he's going to get post-touch, post-touch, post-touch. You get a backup point guard like myself, guess what? We're going to be a very unselfish, got to make the extra pass offense. And so, uh, it's, I think for high school coaches – uh, you got to know where you're at in the environment that you're at and what you can teach. But I do believe incorporating, if you're not incorporating some ball screen stuff at some level, it's, it's probably not 
there's a lot of things you can do with it. Now, do you have to do it all the time? I'm not going to say you have to do it all the time, but I base our stuff off of uh, a, a lot of the NBA stuff, but also I would say now it's actually phasing more to European basketball. I've, our offense is called Phoenix for a reason. Uh, it came from the Phoenix Suns and Steve Nash back when, uh, when they were kind of rolling. My own son's name Nash, so that shows you how much I like their offense. So, um, but I, I think this, there's a lot of creativity. Uh, D'Antoni does a great job of different ball screen angles, and I think it's important for high school coaches to understand if you're not doing that run-up ball screen where it's, it's, it's going to the baseline and you got spacing, I think it's something you probably should add. It's, it's something that is it's taken over the game. It's, it's, a, it's a ball screen angle that puts a lot of pressure on the defense and the rim protection. I was talking to Ben McCollum here just yesterday from Northwest Missouri State. They make a living on it. Obviously, their success speaks for itself and, and his national titles and his uh, national um, kind of notoriety. I, again, the ball screen stuff's important. It's not for me, though, to have the continuity ball screen. I think we phased, we're kind of phasing out of the you got a ball screen over on this side, and then you, then you flow to the other side, and you got another ball screen. You flow back to another, and you got a ball screen. I think there's value in that, but I think there's different ball screens that you can use that are just a little bit more creative and put more pressure on a, on a defense earlier in the possession. Again, we're a little bit old school. We like traditional bigs, so we got some high-low stuff. I think it's okay. It's okay to have that high-low stuff and, and have a post-up game, too. I think it's important to have, when they do get a post-up, so to have movement away from the basketball. I think that movement away from the basketball is, is probably something that um, is not taught well enough right now. Uh, the ability to play without the basketball. I bet you Josh Hartman is really good at teaching the movement stuff away from the basketball because that's what he mastered in at St. Cloud, and he was that guy running on screens or setting screens, and, uh, and that's what they've traditionally had at Buffalo. So I'm sure that he's is one of the better high school coaches in the state at teaching it. But that stuff and teaching them how to play the game is so important. I'm, I'm sure you've had other coaches on here that have really talked a lot about that. But just the ability to kind of, again, have vision, to understand spacing, to understand movements off of, of where the ball's at, how to put yourself in positions. We call them pro spots. So if there's a drive uh, – I was I got a um, a podcast or actually a Zoom call from a European coach. I got it from well, got it from another college coach who this European guy is one of the best European guy coaches and 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 how he does his ball screen stuff. And he said, well, the best players obviously know how to do the pro spot stuff, but they they put themselves in positions where the ball can see them, not where they can see the ball, but the ball can see them. And I thought that was interesting. Well, sometimes, coach, sometimes players think, well, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open, but can the ball see you? And I think, again, from an offensive perspective for high school coaches, again, understanding some pace, having some flow, and, and then, again, having the ability to have the different phases of offense where you might have a certain attack or a certain play, but you got to flow into a motion. you got to flow into something else and to keep pressure on the, off, on the defense. What are some of your secondary looks off of that initial ball screen? Um, I think it's, well, we call them secondary actions. Um, I think the secondary actions piece is, again, is this understanding to not quit on the play. When to attack. 
how to attack. Sometimes you hear the phrase um, uh, pass, pass, attack. So off a drive, you may not drive right again into it because there might be too much traffic. So you might have to make that extra pass and off that extra pass, then you get a secondary drive. But off those drives, the most instinctive players, we had a guy named Matt Zagger uh, from Shakopee, Minnesota. Well, he played uh, he, a couple years back now, but Matt Zager, I, I just want to compliment him. His ability, so we had some very talented players at the time, a guy named Bernard Birch who played at Eastview, a guy, Jordan Miller, was actually a South Dakota guy who's cousins with Mike Miller. We had a lot of guys who were playmakers. And this guy named Matt Zager, he just, he played off the corners. He got back doors. He would set the screen and slip. He was so great at playing without the basketball and putting himself in those pro spots where he could just get, the, I call them easy scores, right? Just your ability to catch and put up a layup with no, no tension. And those types of players, boy, who understand their strengths and understand how to make teammates better with setting a screen. Sometimes they realize, you know, if I set a really good screen, guess what? I'm open. Like, cause both guys have to go to them and, and then I'm open for some form of a play, whether it's a slip or maybe a pick and pop and having balance on that floor and using the spacing. Go into more detail about the pro spots. Just describe where those are on the floor and um, what, how guys get there. I think with pro spots, it's really like the drift to the corner, right? So if a guy's going to drive baseline, the drift to a corner would be it. That, that's a very common one that a lot of coaches teach. The push-pull concepts, right? So when a guy is dribbling at you, how do you move? How do you pull from the backside to, to fill back? Um, when to go back to or how to read your man. I think for five men, one of the things that high school coaches, this probably leads into a good one. Um, high school coaches, if you could teach your five men how to move off of drives and to put yourselves into those pro spots the front of the rim, or we call it a banana cut where uh, maybe you're, you're playing behind the defense there's a to empty out of the block at different times. How to empty out of the block? Do you spin off it? Do you step through? Do you step down to the baseline? I think that's something that's not taught necessarily at the high school level at a high level, and it honestly ain't taught that well at the, at the college level. Those are some of the dribble drive concepts that um, come into play when you kind of are blending, kind of having a hybrid where you do have a traditional pulse. So just teaching your pulse again. How to, how to remove himself from the play and, and, and then put himself in a position where he can kind of catch and finish and get those easy scores it is something that's, uh, that's, that could be taught a little bit better. What do you do in your ball screen offense against uh, a down or an ice coverage? I think you want to use – well, first of all, it comes back to your personnel. If you have posts that can shoot, that, that gives you some better options. But if you don't have got posts that can shoot, I think you try to move that – you try to do as much action in the middle of the floor as you can. I think that middle of floor is where you're getting more screens to the baseline. It's actually a European basketball. You can look at the D'Antoni 21 series. That's an option for it. There's, um, I think there's some really good teams in our league that do a great job of taking advantage of it. Where I, we, we ran the ice stuff for one year, and, and where the challenges come with ice is when you're running into the ball screen. And if it's running into the ball screen with a five is one thing because then the five can sit back. But if you're running into a ball screen with your power forward, are they icing with the power forward or are they not icing with the power forward? That's something when from an offensive game plan you want to know because if they're icing with the four, 
there's certain things that you can do to take advantage of it. But if they're, if they're not icing with the floor, that also causes confusion for the guards. So the guards on the wing, you know, they're closing out. A lot of times they're just naturally told to, to force baseline and you're coming with the screen with the power forward. All of a sudden now that power forwards man thinking, well, I'm going to one through four switch guards thinking I'm in a nice, now you have the ability to get to the baseline. You have the ability to kind of get to the next level or draw two and then make the teammates better. But another way of hurting the ice is, is flipping to more handoffs. Instead of doing ball screens, I think incorporating handoffs in the NBA, they, they, um, they'll, uh, what is it called, delay, where they'll kind of throw back and it's called the delay action where they'll, they'll have some different screening actions. We pull um, – I was a – a big Michigan fan as far as what coach ran uh, before he went to Cleveland. I watched his stuff a lot in the summers and, and he had some of the great, he has some really good handoff actions that I thought uh, were very creative in, in, in cross the rhythm. Um, it changed the spacing of the floor, the misdirection piece and allowed you to kind of get downhill off handoffs. And then last thing on the offensive piece. So I'm a high school coach sitting here listening to this podcast. You're talking about system-based stuff and playing with pace and playing with flow, but I've been a set heavy team or I've been a continuity heavy team. How would you advise making that switch from that continuity or set-based team to a more system approach? Well, I think the sets are okay. It's just, how do you flow? What do you, what's your next action? I guess I would flip it back on you, right? So you have an attack and sometimes the offensive where it's a heavy set, you're trying to get a particular shot at this particular spot. And don't get me wrong. There's value with that. Cause that can teach guys roles. That can teach guys how to be offensive rebounders, how to transition defense. You, there's a lot of value to that. But if you can't get that shot at that spot, how do you flow into your next action? And that's where I talk about system where a system also incorporates that, that next best action, right? How is the system, how do we make each other brother? What is your spacing when that play breaks down? Do you go to a four out one in? Do you go to a five out in? Do you go to a ball screen? Do you, what is your next phase of your offense and how do you flow into that? And, but at the same time, just to be basketball players and not be robots. Um, the system piece a lot of times when it comes to the end of the year and it's the, the postseason. The, a lot of times your best players, you, you want them to actually obviously have the ball. So you, you think, well, I need to run a play to get this guy the ball every time. Well, yeah, there's some value to that. But at the same time, if you have a system that incorporates a guy where he can, he can have a lot of different ways of impacting the game, more than just with the ball in his hands, maybe he's setting screens, maybe he's a decoy. There's a lot of things where you can get easy buckets at the end of the games. Or the thing, other thing too is, is you try to create mismatches where you change their matchups in certain ways where it's a, a handoff situation. Maybe it's a down screen to a handoff. There's a lot of different ways of changing matchups where, again, now you have the ability to attack a, a, a matchup that's more favorable for you at the end of the game. And, and then again, you talk about those pro spots and guys playing off it because in those matchups, you, a lot of times defenses will get caught watching. And you can get an easy bucket just by simple motion actions and uh, screening actions away from the ball at that same time. Last thing I'll ask you, and then I'll give you a little chance to plug your uh, satellite stuff here at the end. 
But uh, we talked uh, last night on the phone before this interview, just a little bit about you guys using Synergy. I know a lot of high school coaches are on Huddle with Huddle Assist. Some coaches have, they're just getting their own film broken down. Other coaches have the three breakdowns a day or they're getting a lot of scout stuff broken down. Regardless, how are you using data at the college level? Uh, again, we're both dealing with student athletes. Obviously, your kids are on, a lot of kids are on some sort of scholarships. They have a little bit more uh, skin in the game in that sense and the basketball um, side of it. But how do you deal with data, uh, either your team or your opponents, in driving uh, future decisions? Well, that, that synergy piece is a blessing. I think every college coach in America knows that it should be very fortunate to have that. Uh, back in the day, I remember having to put a VHS tape on a computer for two hours, and then you have to clip it out, which is another two and a half, three hours. And that's one game. It's five hours for one game. And I remember Coach Steeman wanted three games, so that was at least 15 hours of just uh, film on three games where you watch 15 hours of synergy, man. You could watch the entire season and probably the season before in different ways. So, <laughs> um, But now synergy is amazing. Uh, they continue to bring out different, different uh, features that are just almost too much uh, at some point because you, there's only so much you can use. Well, I think that's where it comes back in the offseason – your ability to use your offseason for game planning and, and developing uh, scouts and, and just can, again, trying to know, kind of know your coaches, right? You got to know their habits. Their, when things happen in this situation, what's his go-tos and what's he going to flip to? And a lot of it all comes back to time, but a synergy really helps you with that time. That's awesome. Uh, last thing here, you talked about you do some satellite clinics. I want to give you an opportunity to plug that to uh, you got some clients, potential clients listening. So you can take a minute and plug what your program does with the satellite clinics. Yeah, no, um, no, we've been, we've been very fortunate that Southwest Minnesota's high school teams and it's kind of branching out where there's a lot of teams now that are asking stuff more in detail about our offense and about what we do. And we always like to give back. Um, we had some different satellite camps set up here in June in Minnesota. We were actually going to drive and be two days at a high school. And we were going to go two a days for two days with high schools. And we have all the film broke down. We were going to record them and then break them down and then show them. So, I mean, I think there's just a certain level, a certain standard that we have when it comes to camps, whether that's on campus, whether that's in our satellite camps. We, we, want, we want to put together something where we can make – make a difference and we are more than willing to to come to a lot of different schools and, and drive and 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 help your 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 school out to the best that we can and and it's sometimes as we all know when we're coaching sometimes just hearing another voice and it might even be the exact same thing but hearing another voice just can make an impact in a different way and that's something else that we've been able to kind of help with and we're also going into this online tour. Like that's the other thing. So I have a 12 year old, a 10 year old and in that youth sports piece, I'm sure you've hit on the youth sports and building of youth sports with other coaches. I mean, that's something other, that's another phase of my life that I'm trying to adapt to and trying to help. It's a unique situation being a college coach, but also trying to help a high school coach and then helping a youth program and with parents and how you handle that. It's, it's a delicate situation and, and trying to do it the right way and be very supportive and, and not overstep your bounds. And uh, that's another thing right now that I'm, I'm trying to have to adapt with, with, with my kids. So uh, there's a lot with those camp things that are going on. That's past year. I was, 
on Tuesdays, I was doing like our college practice. Then I do a sixth grade girls basketball practice. And then I would help out our fourth grade boys basketball practice. And just the ability to kind of phase into the different levels and understanding what each group needs. And then also my tone of voice and how I communicated, how it was important, how I communicated. Uh, it, it made me a better coach too. You're not coaching against Coach Reimer on a Saturday and then coaching against uh, someone from uh, Southern Minnesota in a tournament on a Sunday, are you? No, nah, no. Well, you can, sometimes you never know. Um, Coach Shot, I don't know if you know who Coach Shot is over at Minnesota State Mankato. His daughter's a little bit older, but I always tell him that my daughter's team, where we want to, we want to scrimmage them, we want to take them on. So we, I, I joke with him a little bit, but um, I don't know how the other coaches, kids age, um, how it all matches up. I know Walthall's boys are a little bit older. I think they're in that high school range. Um, and then, then, and then, yeah, there's, you know, Margaret Thaler's kids are out. There, there's, there's a little bit older, different, different variations. So we haven't really crossed paths on that, on the youth sports yet, but uh, it might happen. All right, coach. I appreciate a lot of good information there. I think this would be one that coaches should uh, listen back to. There's a lot of good stuff on the offensive, defensive side and with the practice planning coach. Uh, thank you. Stay safe and best of luck with your team next season. Thank you.